Tomorrow is uh, Valentine's, guys, just remember that. Uh, it is noted because it's a day to proclaim love. Like, that's one of the things that Valentine's exists for, besides all the commercial trappings and all that. It's to proclaim love, to make deep and lasting confession about your love for another person. Now, that might have happened long ago, the first time. If you can remember way back, if you have a Valentine in this room and can remember that first time where you proclaimed on a Valentine's Day that this person was your Valentine. And the hope is in that moment that there is a response. Now, we can all do this. We, you know, Valentine's isn't just about you know, chocolates and flowers. That's, that's an easy part of Valentine's, right? Like we can all just show up at the door and hand out chocolates and roses to someone we say that we love. We can say in that moment, if they say, oh, why did you do this? Well, it's Valentine's Day, I have to do it, right? No, you would never say that. You would say, because I I love you. But what makes it true, the proclamation of love? What makes it true, the confession, right? That's what we're going to talk about this morning, because remember, as we come into this part of Romans, that Paul has been unpacking this idea that God has elected his church by his love. That means he has set his love on his people, Jew and Gentile. He set his love on them. And the word of faith that Paul is proclaiming, he says, is near to you. And so we're going to start this morning with what is this word of love? What is this word that Paul is proclaiming? Well, first it's that Jesus is Lord. Now this is in reference to Jesus' identity. That word Lord is the same word translated in the Old Testament, Yahweh. That Jesus is this king. He's the king over all, but more so that he is God. When, we use, when Paul uses this term, Lord, he is referencing the God. Godness of Jesus. And he's also emphasizing Jesus' work. He says here, we confess that God raised him from the dead. Notice, believe in what, in what he, he, that he lived and he died and he was raised. That he didn't stay dead, but was raised from the dead. That is the word of love that Paul is proclaiming. That Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. That Jesus lived, that Jesus died, and that Jesus was raised. Now, what do we do with this word of love? Sorry, I went backwards. Well, we believe it. Paul here says we respond with belief. We believe, we confess. What does believe mean here? It means to trust. Trust that the person and work of Christ, in the context here of Romans 10, is what makes one righteous. It's what makes one good. It what, 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 it's what justifies someone's life, vindicates them. Last week, what, we talked about what validates your existence, what makes you enough, what qualifies you. Here, Paul is reiterating to us the only thing that validates us, the only thing that qualifies us, the only thing that justifies us or makes us righteous is Jesus. His life, his death, his resurrection. Paul, in verse 10, restates it. Confess, confession and belief, in verse 10, go together. They are two sides of the same coin. Justification and salvation. There's parallelism that's working here. 
John Stott says the following, The parallelism is reminiscent of Hebrew poetry in the Old Testament, and the two clauses are to be held together rather than approached separately. Thus, there is no substantive difference here between being justified and being saved. Similarly, the content of belief and that of the confession are merged. To confess with your mouth is part of belief. It is putting your trust in Christ. Now, I think there's a couple mistakes that we and others have made with this verse. And that leads us to the next point. What we don't do with this word of love. What we don't do with this word of love. We don't make it performative, which means we don't require something additional to this word. And we don't make it conditional. We don't require something additional in response to the word. We might think of this as two separate acts that we need to do to be saved. Like, we must verbally confess that Jesus is the Lord and internally believe that Jesus is raised. Now, that's kind of the tradition that I grew up in. These two separate works completed the salvation process. But it would contradict what Paul has been saying in Romans. This act would become a work, a public profession, prayers with some sort of magic words. But all that's necessary, according to Paul, is that you transfer your hope from you to Christ because he is the God who lived, died, and was raised. Now, we do confess our faith, but I want you to steer, away, steer you away from this being some sort of performative thing to merit your salvation. Remember the context. Paul throughout has said the gospel he is preaching comes to you as gift. The fact that you don't deserve the gift is what qualifies you. So he's, now, he's not now shifting gears to, add, to give this uh, belief some sort of qualification, but he is saying belief is on the person and the work of Christ. Jesus has come. Jesus is God. To speak of him is to speak of God. This This God became man. He lived, he died, and he was raised. And here is the language, the the variable humanity, the you, the you that is subjunctive, and the certainty of the indicative rest on God. You're the subject. God is is the indicative object that accomplishes salvation in us. Now, one might expect belief to precede confession, but the order here is reversed. Why? Because our certainty of belief rest first and primarily on God and God alone. Now, the second mistake would be thinking that the only way to be saved is making Jesus Lord. Like, if you don't submit to him as Lord, then you're not saved. Now, I want to stop here, because that might sound uh, troubling to your ears. And I want to bring us to this thing called the Marrow Controversy. The Marrow Controversy, what was it? In 1717, a Presbyterian in Scotland, uh, it was called the Octorator, I can't say it, but William Craig was in the process of being ordained in this presbytery, and he wouldn't affirm the following statement. It is not sound and orthodox to teach that we must forsake sin in order to our coming of Christ. Now, this turned into a division between a group called the Marrow Men, led by a country preacher named Thomas Boston, and the Neonomians, a new law men. These men said that the conditions of faith and repentance, now hear this, must be met before salvation can be offered. They maintained that sin 
must be forsaken before Christ can be received. Whereas the marrow men replied that it is only in union with Christ that we can be given the power to forsake sin. Now, this may seem like splitting theological hairs here, but Paul is emphasizing some of the very things to the church in Rome and to us today related to performing confessions and Jesus being Lord. Now, Sinclair Ferguson, who's a pastor and one of my favorite seminary professors, has written extensively on this idea. And here's what he says. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is a gospel of free grace that is to be proclaimed freely to all. You see, in the Marrow controversy, what Boston and the 11 other men fought and preserved was, the, was two of the great keynotes of the New Testament. First of all, that in Jesus Christ, there is fullness of grace for all who come to him. God has made a, a gift and grant to all men because of his free love to mankind in their lost estate. There is good news for every man without exception. Christ is dead for him. And secondly, it preserved the New Testament's emphasis not only on the fullness of the grace of Christ, but on the freeness of the grace of Christ. It is not sound to say that a man must first quit sin in order to be qualified for the offer of the gospel that will lead him to Christ. For the offer of the gospel is not only a message about the fullness of Christ for all who will come, it is a message about the free grace of our Lord Jesus Christ bestowed not upon the righteous, but upon the unrighteous. Now let me emphasize this again. These men who denied this claim belonged to a confessing church. They thoroughly confessed the doctrines of the Westminster Confession. And yet, you see, they belonged to a Reformed orthodoxy that was thoroughly cold and thoroughly lifeless and thoroughly moderate and dead. And one of the things that Boston saw with his unusual penetrating clarity was this, that while he stood with those who condemned the marrow in preaching a God of unconditional election, there were men who held to a doctrine of unconditional election, but were preaching a doctrine of conditional and conditioned grace. And they were therefore tearing the feet from under the fullness and the freeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the major premise was this, the grace of God in Christ saves the elect. The minor premise was this, the elect are known by forsaking sin. And the conclusion drawn was this, grace is therefore given to those who forsake sin. But this was wrong. You see what these men were doing, they were confusing the fruit of grace in their minor premise with the qualifications of grace. They were saying that what grace does to a man when it touches his life and changes him is what these men must present as their credentials to Jesus before he touches them with grace. And they were turning free grace of God and the gospel upon its head and distorting the message of the glorious God, both to those who heard it evangelistically and to those who needed its healing and its saving power pastorally. Now, here's what I want to sit on here for a second for us. There are four errors that we slip into in, our, um, in this, in our Reformed theology. First, it's separating Christ from his benefits when we preach the gospel. Like, it's starting at the wrong place. 
they were thinking to whom belonged the benefits of the work of Christ. And the answer within their confessional standards was obvious. The benefits of the work of Christ belong to those who God has elected. Paul has been unpacking this throughout Romans 9 and 10. No other sincerely or heartily, uh, none of this can be known without the benefits of the cross. But then you see they concluded that what we must do in our preaching of the gospel is to offer the benefits of Christ's work to those to whom the benefit belongs, namely the elect. And we can never really offer those benefits until we have one, some sense or another of who those elect really are. And that means at the end of the day, we begin to offer a gospel to those we deem to show some signs of belonging to God's elect. Now, how do we do this? We judge someone by if they're ready to hear the message of the gospel by something going on in their life. We, we judge whether or not they are prepared to hear the gospel call, whether they have somehow shown themselves to be either worthy of it or somehow ready for it, and then we offer them the gospel. Or we create boundary markers within Christ's church that doesn't make um, hospitality the message of the church, and we somehow make it loops for someone to, to have to get through to get into Christ's church. Remember, the gospel is offered as gift to the undeserving. Here's what Ferguson says. He says, you can't really read that, but you can listen. He is the Father's deed of gift and grant to all lost mankind, he being Jesus. And in his name, Reformed ministers and evangelists may speak throughout the earth with the most exalted Reformed confessional orthodoxy, and yet say to every man, not Christ died for you, not the benefits of Christ's death I know to be for you, but can speak throughout the earth and say, with the marrow, Christ is dead for you. That is to say, there is a Savior, and in his death and resurrection, he is sufficient to save all and every man and woman who comes to him by faith. There is fullness of grace in Christ crucified, and you too may find salvation in his name. Christ is never separated from his benefits. Second, offering a conditional offer of the gospel. What happens is that if Christ's benefits are offered and held forth without Christ himself being held forth, those benefits must be held forth on condition. You may know these benefits, it can be said, if you are among the elect. You may receive forgiveness if you have sufficiently forsaken sin. You may know the message of grace if you have known a sufficient degree of conviction. And you see how, once again, this turns the message of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ on its head. However subtly, however imperceptibly, and in whatever reform circle it happens. Why? Because it is only the grace of God in the gospel, it is only our Lord Jesus Christ himself, that enables men and women to forsake their sin. And therefore, that forsaking of sin can never be a condition of hearing the offer of full salvation in Jesus Christ. It is because there is forgiveness with God that he is to be feared. Whenever we make the offer of Christ dependent upon conditions, we have taken the grace of God in the gospel and disgraced it. Grace is no more grace. 
However subtly it happens, no matter how reformed the language may be in which it is expressed, and you and I know and labor in one area in which this is of great importance to us, even if that condition is conviction of sin, conviction of sin is never a condition for the free offer of the gospel. And friends, how have we done this? We rest in the means God may employ between the conditions that God employs in our experiences. That's where we sit and we rest. Third, distorting the character of God. We do this in two ways. In the general work of salvation, right? Salvation is through grace, Romans 5, 6. When did Christ show grace to us? When we were ungodly while we were still sinners, while we were enemies. There are no conditions other than being dead and our trespasses and sins. We distort the character of God in that general work of salvation, or second, in God's very character, making it seem as if the Son twisted the Father's unwilling heart to save. God the Father, according to this passage in Romans 10, is the source of redemption. The reason the Son of God died upon the cross and was raised was not in order to persuade God, but because, as John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so the death of Christ is the means by which God's love touches needy sinners. He loved us from the first of time. He loves us to the last of time. And this is what the marrow men saw. It was the marrow, the heartbeat of the gospel, the foundation of the grace of God. Ultimately, a question that lies at the heart of all theology and all pastoral work is, who is this God with whom we have to do? And what manner of God is he? Is he a God who comes to sinners lost and broken and brings them conditions by which they may be saved? Or is he a God who deals with man on the basis of his free, unmerited, unearned grace. If one may bring the marrow controversy down to its starkest, it was this. The issue that arose between the marrow men and those who denigrated them was the very issue that rose between our blessed Lord Jesus Christ and the Pharisees. Both believed in the holiness of God, both believed in predestination and election, both believed in the law of God and its application, but the Pharisees believed and taught a conditioned grace, and therefore a conditional God. And our Lord Jesus brought down upon them the woes of judgment, because at the end of the day, they were not only distorting the gospel, they were distorting the character of our Father in heaven. I want you to sit into that for a second. Because I think we as the church, even Reformed people, can be pharisaical in our application of the gospel to others. What are the ways that we create unnecessary boundaries for someone to hear the gospel? Is it the way that they dress? Is it the way that they live? Is it some political system or ideology that we come to that we think must be part of the equation of following Jesus? Is it some experiential aspect 
of faith that must be present. I remember when I first walked an aisle and what the guy told me I should be feeling. And if I didn't feel that after walking the aisle, then perhaps it wasn't authentic. Like we do that. Most of the time it's innocent. But what I want you to hear this morning is that when we add conditions, we make a conditional God. And we forget the unmerited favor that rescued us in our lowly estates, which all of us existed in and do exist in apart from Christ. The the last uh, error is distorting the very nature of ministry. You see, what had happened amongst these men in the early decades of the 18th century was this. They had mastered the pattern by which grace worked. There wasn't a comma, in other words, in their ordo salutis in which they were not familiar. They knew their confession of faith forwards and backwards and upside down. And yet, while they were familiar with the pattern by which grace works and had mastered it, they had never really been mastered by the grace of God in the gospel in their hearts. They knew what John Owen calls the distinction between the knowledge of the truth and the knowledge of the power of the truth. They were masters of Calvinism who had never been mastered. They were Calvinists with the minds and hearts of natural men, at least as far as these truths were concerned. Why is that so significant for us in ministry? For this reason, beloved, because men who have only a conditional offer of the gospel will have only a conditional gospel. The man who has only a conditional gospel only knows conditional grace. And only knows a conditional God. And the man who has only a conditional God will have a conditional ministry to his fellow men. And at the end of the day, he will only be able to give his heart and his life and his time and his devotion to his people on condition. And he will love and master the truth of the great doctrine of grace. But until that grace in God himself masters him, the grace that has mastered him will never flow from him to his people. As Ferguson said, he will become a Jonah in the 20th century, sitting under his tree with a heart that is shut up against sinners in need of grace because he thinks of God in conditioned terms. Friends, I say that carefully because if you peer out in our reformed world we have lots and lots of Jonas Ferguson said this is a salvation by vinegar a sanctification by vinegar you know what I'm saying there what's the difference when people come and have been broken by sin have been tempted by Satan and are ashamed to confess the awful mess they have made of their life. It's not a Calvinistic pastor who has been sanctified by vinegar that they need. It's a pastor that has been mastered by the unconditional grace of God, for whom ironclad orthodoxy has been torn away and the whole armor of a gracious God has been placed upon his soul the armor of one who would not break the bruised reed or quench the the dimly burning wick, the God of free grace. And we need ministers. That's not just me, by the way. 
That's you. That's the elders of Christ Church, the deacons of Christ Church. It's also you as you minister to other people. We need ministers who have experienced the gift of grace. This is what Ambrose experienced with Augustine, by the way. This is what he says. To Milan I came, Augustine that is, to, the, to Ambrose the bishop, whose eloquent discourse did then plentifully dispense into thy people the flower of thy wheat, the gladness of thy oil, and the sober inebriation of thy wine. To him was I unknowingly led by thee, that by him I might knowingly be led to thee. That man of God received me as a father and showed me a kindness in my coming. Thenceforth I began to love him, and I listened diligently to him preaching to the people, not with the intent I ought, but as it were, trying his eloquence, whether it answered the fame thereof or flowed fuller or lower than was reported. And I hung on his words attentively, but of the manner I was, I was as careless and a scornful looker on. I joyed also that the old scriptures of law and prophets were laid before me, not now to be perused with that eye to which before they seemed absurd, which when I reviled. Thy holy ones for so thinking, whereas indeed they thought not so. And with joy I heard Ambrose in his sermons to the people, oftentimes most diligently recommend this text for a rule, that the letter killeth, but the spirit giveth life. Whilst he drew aside the mystic veil, laying open spiritually what according to the letter seemed to teach something unsound, teaching herein nothing that offended me, though he taught what I knew not as yet, whether it was true. Friends, that's how we minister, not with vinegar, but with the gift of free grace, with a heart that runs after sinners. The godly minister, listen here, parent, parents, friend, is one who sees the prodigal returning and runs and falls on his neck and weeps and kisses him and says, this my son was dead, he was lost. And now he is alive and found, not older brothers who would not go into the party with them. This is why the gospel is offered freely. It is free grace we offer. And so if you're wondering how you offer that gift, it's simple. Not belief in belief, not falling in love with love, but belief in a person. Jesus is the person. This Jesus is God, and he is Lord. And Lord is related to what? His covenant name. The name for us. The name for you. My friend calls his wife Tukey Bear. I don't know why. We have names for our beloveds. And Jesus has a name that he's given to us. Because he's our beloved. And that is Lord. Because he loves us and has set his love on us. And it's simple trust like a child. We don't have it all worked out, but we trust. Like a child, like a dad, he smiles. He throws the child up in the air. He catches it. He gives ice cream and holds his hand crossing the street. And he hugs him. Why? When he does this, the little one can trust him, can run and jump into his arms and know that he will uphold him. Belief is like this. It's simple, based on observable and lived things. And so we trust in the work of Jesus. We sit into it. We run and flail ourselves into it. And sanctification is growth in this trust. It isn't by vinegar. It's by gift. Like a child with a parent. 
We trust in this work and no other work. Friends, this morning, if you are trusting in other works, other formulas, in getting something right theologically in some kind of a subjective experience, remember this morning there is no other name given among heaven and earth whereby we might be saved other than Jesus. We come back to him, his life, his death, his resurrection, and we thrust ourselves upon it in trust. Last point, who should hear this word of love? Everyone. Everyone should hear this word of love. We offer it freely. Verses 11 through 13, for the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing riches on all who call upon him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone deserves the offer of the gospel. Jew, Gentile, white, black, brown, male, female, young, old, rich, poor, married, single, healthy, sick, religious, irreligious, good, bad, Democrat, Republican, independent. Everyone deserves to hear the free offer of the gospel. Do not forget the marrow of the gospel. It comes to only those who are unworthy, and everyone who is unworthy should hear it. And Paul says everyone who believes it will not be put to shame. We talked briefly about this last week, but that idea of honor and shame, we came into this letter talking about how gifts are given, were given in the Roman world to the honorable, but the shameful would not receive a gift. And Paul flips the script. Those who carry shame got the offer of the good news and the gift of Jesus because of Christ. And when you believe in him, he says, you cannot be put to shame. Honor is given to those who are most ashamed in this life through believing in Jesus. And here he quotes Joel 2.32. The call is seeing Jesus for who he is and our need for him. Like a parent, like Rich described in the confession. Help. Help is the call. Jesus hears that call. The call of help. Because we can't save ourselves. We need someone to save us. And that word saved, utterly loved, utterly justified, resurrected. He bestows riches on all who call on him. There's no partiality with God. There's no miserly gifts with God. God has called Gentiles, not reluctantly, but gladly, Paul says. And he does so even though they themselves did not pursue righteousness. This is the offense of grace. And today, as you sit, maybe he's calling you. And what do you do? You run like the prodigal, into the everlasting arms of Jesus. You run and believe. And everyone who does that is saved. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would remind us, even at this table, as we've seen baptism, as you showed us the graces for you, that you would confirm it even at this table, that you are the God who bestows riches on all of us who call on you. This table is for all who have called on you. And so we pray that we would come smiling with joy to receive your great gifts that you've given for us so that we might
continue in our journey of believing that Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection is for us, all of us, even as we know our own hearts. Remind us that grace is for us today, we pray. We ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.